across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. Christmas is coming, the goose is getting fat, but you won't be allowed to have more than six people in your house or in your flat. You see what I did there? It's quite good, that, isn't it? I'm quite proud of that. I know it's pretty simple, uh, pretty straightforward, but the message, I have to say, is absolutely and utterly ridiculous. This morning, the government's COVID restrictions look even madder than ever. Swathes of high-vis jacket-wearing prefects patrolling our streets, demanding that we break it up or move on can only lead to civil unrest and general frustration in our communities. And talk of a curfew and further limitations on travel are simply absurd, aren't they? And this idea that you'll be sitting around the Christmas dinner table having your turkey, uh, having your stuffing, having your roast potatoes, having your roasted parsnips and maybe even preparing yourself for some Christmas pudding, uh, getting the lighter fuel ready. For heaven's sake, there's a guy at the door. Oi, how many people you got in there? On Christmas Day? Seriously? Are you having a laugh? For heaven's sake, this morning we'll be asking you just how much more of this nonsense can you actually take? I've often said it, uh, if there was a second lockdown, I don't believe many people would actually adhere to it. Uh, But by attempting to nudge us all into subservience and caution, Boris Johnson is surely risking the exact opposite effect. It's now very obvious that the increase in infections is amongst the young, those between 20 and 29 years of age. There are figures now available for that, precisely the group that is at the lowest risk of dying from Covid for which there are also scientific figures to look at. The latest move will do nothing to encourage people back to work. We'll be asking former MEP Annunziata Rees-Mogg what she makes of it all, uh, plus a few other things as well. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we're joined by author Helen Dale, who will bring us the latest on lockdown in Australia. We had a terrible call from Melbourne earlier this week from a guy who said there were two suicides in my street this morning alone because of the ridiculous lockdown restrictions that are in place. She will also describe how British politics has been realigned since the Brexit referendum, and we are now far more extreme than we have ever been in both directions. Former First Minister of Scotland, Lord McConnell, is going to be here as well to issue a plea to the Prime Minister about independence. He's also going to issue a warning about ISIS too. 0344 We're heading over to America to get the latest on the fight for the White House with LaDonna Harvey. And we've got Super Chef Dean Edwards coming on as well. Plus, of course, a whole lot more uh, is going on. And we'll be talking to Migration Watch as well about an increase in migrants coming, not in dinghies, but in the back of lorries again. All of a sudden, suddenly that is a problem. Uh, plus, of course... Uh, we'll be taking your calls because we are the home of common sense. We are the place where your views matter just as much to me as my own do. Well, I want to hear from you. And here's the number, 0344 You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, the Sun's headline today, No Ho Ho, I think it probably tops the lot, really. It's quite a good one. Uh, lots of people concerned about what's going on. Boris Johnson yesterday afternoon comes out, basically gives a briefing uh, to the assembled uh, hacks and tells them that there may be threats to Christmas. Now, I don't know why I would do that. I know they're asking that question. I don't know why anybody would think that far ahead at the moment, because it's almost impossible to think one day ahead. I mean, we could be seeing later on today, for example, Portugal being put back on the naughty list. So if you happen to have people who are visiting Portugal at the moment, you might find uh, that they're going to be locked out when they get home. They're going to have to go into quarantine. Not at the moment. At the moment, it still remains uh, not on the naughty list. So that's a good thing. But the idea that you could even project as far as Christmas and work out what's going on uh, is madness. But what also uh, was announced yesterday was that groups of six or more uh, are no longer going to be allowed. Only six people uh, from uh, any given household. You can have three uh, sets of two. You can have six sets of one. Uh, It's not a question of how many households. But, I mean, all of this madness, this craziness, is going to do nothing for my crusade to try and get everybody back to work. Because if you're being told you can't meet in, in larger groups than six, how on earth are you going to convince anyone that they need to get back on a train back into an office, back behind a desk, back at their computer, not working from home. 0344 499 How much more of this are we supposed to be taking? Let's talk to Anunziata Rees-Mogg, uh, former MEP, of course. Uh, she's back now uh, in this country, away from Brussels, probably, thankfully. Anunziata, very good morning to you. Welcome. 
Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm very well indeed. Thank you so much for joining us. I presume from uh, the sunny shires of, uh, of this country. Tell us, first of all, I know we're going to talk a little bit about Brexit and what's going on, but tell us what you're making at the moment of the way uh, these restrictions are being handed down. You know, I mean, I don't think we can talk about Christmas at this point because we, we don't really know what sort of state uh, the country is going to be in. But what we can say with a fair amount of surety is that the people who are now getting infected are younger. They're less likely to be damaged or, or indeed killed by the virus. So what's going on? I think um, that the government has set a line that the scientific advisers said it had to in order to save the NHS in the first place. And unfortunately, it hasn't reacted to change to the new situation, which Mm. is, as you say, younger people are getting it. There are not huge spikes in hospitalizations or deaths so far. It, by the age profile of the people who are increasingly getting COVID, it doesn't look like there will be a huge spike. And indeed, there hasn't been in the the hospital treatment side in the European countries that we've put into quarantine if people come back from. We've got to realise we're going to have to live with this awful disease. We live with a lot of awful diseases. And we mitigate as well as we can, but we cannot uh, send people into isolation, depression, loneliness are huge factors, but also not having hospital treatment, not seeing GPs and not getting the economy going, people not going to work. Uh, If we go down that route until Christmas, we will be in a terrible state next year. Yeah, exactly right. But the point is as well, I think we are at breaking point as a, as a country in terms of the attitudes. And yes, there are people who are scared of it and they still want, don't want to come out of their houses and they still don't want to go back to work. One, this is not going to help them at all because it's going to make them even more scared because people are going to think, well, hang on a minute, is there a second wave coming? What, what do the government know that we don't know that they're not telling us? Um, you know, and it's not going to encourage people to send their kids to school. You know, it's really going to set us back. I mean, we were only a few days ago having a, a sort of a, a national conversation conversation about when we can properly get more people back to work. Absolutely. It was hugely pushed by the government that everyone should be going back to work. And uh, possibly, I think, too far so that they even suggested, and I think it was just kite flying, but one of the papers reported that people could be fired if they continued to work from home. And I think that was taking it a step too far, because Mm. as you say, people are still genuinely scared. There are a lot of people in this country with underlying health conditions or living with people with underlying health conditions who are terrified. And we've got to mitigate that by the reassurance that really things can get back to normal and we can move on with our lives. And that's got to be through some level of testing. I think daily testing of the whole population uh, sounds implausible um, and unlikely to ever materialize. But a combination of testing and fast results so that people are not scared to be tested and go into quarantine whilst they wait and their whole household has to quarantine as well, which is putting people off despite having symptoms. And we've got to realise that more people are dying of flu at the moment. Normal flu. We don't shut down the country for it. Well, we don't. And this is the this is the terrible problem that we seem to have. You know, we take one step forward and two steps back, it seems at the moment, because, you know, on the one hand, you've got uh, various different departments saying and issuing instructions like Department of Transport says one thing, Department of Health says something else. You know, Department of Work and Pension says one thing that's countermanded by something that comes out of the Treasury. You know, there doesn't seem to be much joined up thinking going on. I think that the um, old adage, advisers advise and ministers decide Mm. what needs to be done now. We have listened to the scientific advice. We have listened to the medical advice. It has come out of our ears. We have had press conferences endlessly with all the experts. But we now need leadership and we need Boris Johnson to grab this and lead from the front and get our country back on its feet. Yeah. Well, I'm looking at some uh, scientific figures right now, data which has been collected over the course of this particular pandemic. And according to the figures published in the Daily Mail, infections in England per 100,000 by age group, um, the highest uh, is basically 41.6%, and that's the 20 to 29 age group. Now, if you look at the death rates, for example... Between the ages of 15 and 44, there's only 568 deaths altogether, right? And by far and away, the biggest number of deaths, you would not be surprised to know, is 85 and above, 22,075. So, you know, just even looking at very two very simple graphs, you can clearly see 
that the numbers of people who are now infected are largely uh, in groups where people are not going to die. Um, I'm glad to say I sneak into a, a low age range, <laughs> a low intensity age range. Um, I do, however, have um, an elderly, or she wouldn't like me calling her that, mother, who I would like to be able to stay safe. Yeah. And yes. of course, we've got to take some mitigations in order that our um, olders and, and in my case, certainly betters do remain um, healthy as long as they should. But we can't afford to close the entire economy down, to leave those people in total isolation, which is known to be incredibly bad for their mental health, to have people committing suicide because they are so worried. We have got to have reassurance. We have got to have normality. Yes. I mean, for example, a friend of mine in Scotland is only allowed to see his mother if he arranges to meet her in the pub. You know, that's the craziness of the rules. He can meet her in the pub. There's no problem with that. Um, but what he can't do is go to her house. It, no, it's completely mad. And I think um, the differences between the <laughs> devolved um, administrations has caused greater confusion in all of this, that yeah. every single one of the four nations is doing different things. I saw a chart today explaining you can have six in one and eight in another. And, uh, you know, it, it's ridiculous. We are a united kingdom. And we should uh, operate on that basis. But uh, I'm just glad I've only got three children mm. so that um, my husband and I are allowed to see uh, my mother or his mother separately uh, to make this magic number six. Whereas my siblings with more children uh, apparently can't. Right. I mean, what if you're already in a household with more than six people? What does that mean? I mean, I don't, this is, but you end up having these kind of ludicrous conversations with people where you go, well, can you do that? Well, I can do this, but I can't do that. You know, I can go and see this person, but I can't go and see that person. And you just wonder how on earth they're coming up with this stuff. There cannot be any scientific. There can't be. If I had had twins in February rather than an individual child, I wouldn't be able to see my mother. And yet my baby has never left. Uh, the house right. because of lockdown other than to have his injections that all babies have to have. And that can't be it's... great, can it? I mean, I, I'm assuming you've got a garden, but nevertheless, babies need to go out into the big wide world and be able to see and hear and smell things because they've never done it before. Absolutely. And I think until he was, uh, was it three, four months old, he literally thought his father was the only man in the world. Right. And that can't be good for them either. No. Uh, the socialisation point. Um, he has two sisters and a mother, so mm. he had seen a few women. But um, it, it, it's causing long-term problems yeah. the longer this goes on. Absolutely and we've right. got to we've got to overcome it and find ways to get back to normal. And I'm wearing my mask. I'm not one of these uh, re rebels who thinks that that is a massive imposition. Mm. But that can't go on forever either, and lots of people aren't doing it anyway. Exactly right. And of course this latest uh, sound and, and fury about having COVID marshals wandering about the streets telling people, you know, effectively to put that light out or to move on and, to, you know, and I mean that's just a recipe for disaster. That's a recipe for civil unrest, for people to get very worked up. You know, I don't even like it when somebody tells me to not stand in a particular place, you know, because I just don't like being told what to do. I'm certainly not going to be uh, listening to anybody in a high-vis jacket telling me to move on. Well, I can tell you, I feel very, very sorry for the people who become those marshals, yeah. because, as you say, the reaction will not be positive. And I know um, from a security guard in one of our local supermarkets here that they are getting so much harassment yeah. already, but even saying, do you have a mask? Right. That people are already reacting to that. And if you're out on the streets trying to find people and uh, tell them off, for minor infractions, mm. I think the reaction is going to be terrible, and rightly so. Yeah, we absolutely. Are a free nation. We must return to it. Uh, rule by fear is not acceptable. No, it's not. And also rule by kind of what I would describe as, you know, sort of little officialdom uh, and the kinds of things that we used to make fun of other countries for having. You know, we used to make fun of Italy uh, for the inability to have any kind of government that lasted any, any length of time at all. We used to make fun of Germany because they had all these funny little rules about what you could do and what you couldn't do. And uh, we're now turning into what we used to make fun of. Absolutely. And, uh, the classic example is, of course, the Napoleonic Code, by which uh, obviously France, but most of the EU is set up mm. so that you can do nothing until the government tells you you can. As a nation, we were always very proud that we could do whatever we liked unless it was specifically out. Yes. 
I think that's a crucial underpinning of our culture. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. Speaking of Brussels, um, well, let's talk about what we were originally going to talk about in the first place before all this started, which was, of course, the Brexit negotiations, the question of uh, what's happening in Northern Ireland, the question of whether uh, the government is right to break international law. I, I'm told that Julian Moron is already preparing another lawsuit to try and prove that the Prime Minister should be locked up uh, for breaking the law. Um, where's this all going to end? Oh. Who knows, because it is still all part of a negotiation. And the whole point of a negotiation is that both sides play what they see as their best and strongest hands, and they make the loudest noise possible to get what they want out of the settlement. Uh, As it stands, uh, the European Union and the member states agreed to uh, the withdrawal bill that was ratified in January. And we left on the 31st of January with them having agreed to Section 38, Mm. which quite clearly states that notwithstanding the withdrawal agreement, we still are a sovereign nation. And if they have agreed that, I cannot see that in international law we're breaching anything by running our own country. These are about internal agreements, the internal market within the United Kingdom. If we change that, that surely is legally all right. Yes, I think so. And clearly as well, there was some reason to do uh, the move and the manoeuvre that, that the government threaten- is threatening to do because it would appear that the EU was kind of bringing some pressure onto the government and to the negotiators specifically about Northern Ireland, suggesting that they might somehow disrupt uh, the freedom of movement of animals and the freedom of movement of foodstuffs through Northern Ireland into other parts of the EU. It- it, it is all uh, negotiating tactics, I think, at the moment. Uh, it may become reality if it needs to. And I think we've been uh, lucky that Boris Johnson and uh, Dave Prost have uh, really strengthened our position and are not just kowtowing or being bullied by the European Union and agreeing to everything they say, as mm. Mrs May was before them. And by being strong, we've got to show that we mean it. Yeah, I think so. I think that's absolutely right. And I think also we have to get away from this kind of yoke of um, of the European Union and the pressure that they've been bringing to bear on other countries in the EU for decades now, because that's what they're used to doing. You know, we have to say to ourselves, it's a bit like leaving home for the first time. You know, you're going out there, uh, you're not coming back for a while and you're going to have to find out what it's like. Indeed, we've got to find our own feet and our own voice, and we are doing that. The whole point of Brexit was to ensure we were a sovereign nation. And that is the crucial part that this government was elected to stand up for, that we can rule ourselves in the way we see fit. And I think it is uh, admirable that we finally have representatives who are doing just that. And on the flip side, of course, the EU are going to react in the way they have been Mm. that they're going to attack us and try and belittle us and try and undermine us because they want to win their side of the argument and they want to get the provisions that they think are in their own best interests we want to do the same for us and we've got to stay strong absolutely right it's great to talk to you thank you very much indeed nunziata reese mogg there reporting into us from the shires uh, as we say what is it like where you are and i can tell you this If you're as angry as most of the people I've spoken to already today are about this latest load of government regulations and manoeuvrings, uh, you will not be at all surprised to know that I would like to hear from you. 0344 499 1000. Lewis uh, says this, uh, I've got five children and me and my missus, and that makes seven of us. Does that mean I have to go and live in the pub for a while with my friends? Well, it's a very good question. I mean, I don't really know what happens if you've already got more than six people in your own house. What does it mean? Does anybody know? I don't think they do. You have to wait for somebody in a high-vis jacket to come around and explain it to you, presumably. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. We're going to take a slightly different direction now, take a slightly different tack. Lord Jack McConnell, former First Minister of Scotland, Labour peer, is with us today. He put out a tweet the other day which interested me. Six years since ISIS uh, slaughtered Yazidi men and took Yazidi women and children as slaves. Tens of thousands displaced by attempted genocide and slavery survivors still living in these camps, the global community and Iraq must do better on this. Uh, Lord Jack, very good morning to you. Good 
Good morning to you, mate. Thanks very much indeed for, for joining us. I mean, it's it very stark uh, when I read that tweet and I suddenly thought to myself, you know, we, we sometimes take our eyes off things and then wonder why something happens that we didn't know was going to happen. And it's this looks like a case of that, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, when something's in the headlines, every leading politician around the world wants to comment on it. The celebrities want to get on board. Uh, uh, all the attention's there. And then when it moves away and the headlines go elsewhere, then thousands and thousands of people are left to try and uh, survive and pick up the pieces. And, and you know, I think your, your listeners, your viewers on YouTube would be maybe shocked today to discover that you know, when, when the Yazidis were women and children were taken away six years ago, there were thousands of them taken into slavery. Uh, the young boys were brainwashed into becoming uh, child soldiers for ISIS. The young girls were sold into sex slavery. Um, and I think most people would assume that now, well, maybe now that ISIS have been supposedly defeated, they're all back home again. Yeah. And actually there are thousands still, mainly in Syria, uh, who've never been able to return. Um, and have not yet been rediscovered and brought back home again. And many, many thousands of Yazidis are still living in tents and camps around Dahuk in northern Iraq and have not been able to return to their homeland in Sinjar. And uh, just this last weekend, there was a fire in one of the camps that destroyed a number of tents where families have been living. Life in these camps is sheer hell. And these people are not receiving the support of the international community that they need to get back uh, to get back home and to be safe and secure again. Right. And is the home that they want to get back to safe and secure for them to go to? I mean, they might not be able to get there, but is it if they were to be able to get there, is it safe enough for them? Well, that's one of the challenges. Um, Sinjar uh, uh, has seen the return of, of uh, some few thousand Yazidis over the past uh, two years or so, but there are... Uh, still real concerns um you know isis may well have been defeated in general terms but there are still big security issues inside iraq and many pockets of former isis uh, combatants uh, out and about uh, who could become very dangerous again so there needs to be you know real security uh, for people to return and also they need to have schools and all the things that were destroyed yeah. in the course of the conflict schools and hospitals um, there's a couple of great international organizations Yazda is the main Yazidi organization, and Nadia's initiative, which was set up in the name of Nadia Murad, the, uh, the young woman who wrote a book about her time in, in slavery. Um, and they've, they've been rebuilding hospitals and schools and you know doing some interesting work. But there's so much more that needs mm. to be done. And there are still literally you know, 80,000, 90,000 Yazidis living in camps in Duhuk, uh, a few hundred miles away. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating, isn't it, that we've we've got a sort of culture at the moment which is obsessed with the slavery that took place hundreds of years ago, but doesn't want to yeah. do anything about the slavery that's actually going on now. Yeah, I, I, yeah, and I understand people's anger about the past, but I mean, we need to be angry about what's happening right now as well. And uh, you know, this is a religion that ISIS tried to wipe out, not just bomb or uh, you know uh, or fight against, but actually tried to wipe out in the course of a few weeks. Um, the stories about what happened to the young women in particular and the girls, absolutely horrific. Young mm. girls as young as nine being sold in, uh, in, in markets for mm. sex slaves, uh, passed around between men uh, from uh, who, who either were members of ISIS or were their supporters. And we cannot leave these people behind. You know, mm. we have a, you know, as a moral obligation to do something about this and to help. And the UK has been helping try and br- get evidence to bring some of the ISIS members involved to justice inside Iraq. So the UK is doing some work on this, but I think the UK and our international allies need to be able to stand up for people in this situation and uh, uh, and help them get back, They'll never get back to normal again, but at least get, get back the lands, the culture and the society mm. that they had before. Because it's not that long ago since we were seeing reports from Turkey, southern Turkey, where many refugees were moving through um, and there was a big row going on between the sort of the Kurdish areas and, and I guess that was a slightly different yep. problem. But but that seems to have come to an end because inevitably it's not impossible to believe that some of these refugees might end up getting trafficked across Europe. And then it does become a more direct problem for people here because we see these people then being either mistreated in, in, in France or trying to make it across the, the channel to come here. Yeah. I mean, yes, obviously, some people make a choice to, to move continents to try and try and get the safety and security that they can't get at home. Mm. Uh, but 
I have to say, you know, 99% of the refugees or displaced people that I've met in camps, in, not just in Iraq, but in other parts of the world over, over recent years, they want to go home. Yeah. Um, I've met young teenage boys who tell me they want to become engineers so they can go home and rebuild the buildings that have been destroyed. You know, I've met girls who want to be social workers and doctors uh, so that they can repair some of the damage that's been done to human beings that they've seen, horrors that young young children should never have seen in their in their lives. People want to go home. Um, and the more that we can do to help them go home to a safe and secure environment and to a life that has some opportunity and, and, and services and, and, and an economy, um, not only do we help them then not have to come to Europe, but we also we also help ensure that the world is a safer and better place as well, and that helps in the longer term. Sure. Just on uh, uh, the situation that we find ourselves in, um, Jack, uh, what are you making so far of the uh, uh, the government's stewardship of what's happening? There's a lot of angry people calling me today with this latest um, the sort of mad idea that you can only meet with six people, you know, Christmas might be cancelled. I mean, it's really getting ridiculous now, isn't it? Well, I mean, it's not been uh, it's not been the best time uh, for government uh, uh, across the UK over the course of the of the last few months. I think the um, you can't have government by daily announcements that are different from the previous day. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I, far too many things being said that are not carried through. Um, far too many inconsistent decisions. Uh, I think both, from my point of view, both in Scotland and in England. Uh, the utter shambles in education over the course of the summer, a real abdication of responsibility by ministers there. Um, you know, I think the, they need to get a grip. I actually, I'm not as hostile to the idea of the of the, the rule of six as some of your callers have been this morning. <laughs> uh, at, least, at least it seems simple and easy to understand and easy to enforce, which none of the rules so far have been. Have been. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I do worry that the... Um, the constant daily focus on COVID uh, and these restrictions has led us to ignore many of the other implications. You know, I, you know, I, I have members, my extended family, currently waiting for cancer treatment. We've not been able to have it for the last few months. Um, I have uh, surgeons in my extended family uh, who have not done an operation for six months wow. um, and, and would love to go into one of those Nightingale hospitals and do large numbers of elective surgery over a few weeks to try and catch up on those who've been dumped on waiting lists. And, you know, I, I do think that we need to keep this in a wider perspective. And there's the, the rest of our health service needs as much attention as the COVID crisis uh, or or what was the COVID crisis six months ago. Yeah. Um, and, I, I, you know, I, 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 I'm worried that you know, almost all the daily activity of the Prime Minister, the First Minister in Scotland, the Cabinet members, or at least those that we see in public, I don't know where the others are, but those that we see in public, is focused only on this and not on the wider health implications of having closed down hospitals and doctor surgeries and so on back in the spring and still being closed. Uh, and the wider implications, for example, for young people and not being able to consistently go to school and go to after-school clubs and go to outdoor uh, uh, courses and all the sort of things that you know, help turn kids into healthy adults. Yeah, and there's very much a perception, which I suspect you, like me, do not share, uh, that Nicola Sturgeon's doing a fantastic job, so much better than Boris Johnson, so much more in charge, so much more of a leader, and also that she's now kind of leading the country of Scotland out uh, of the United Kingdom because she believes that more people now will vote for uh, independence in a second referendum. I don't think that's true. Well, I, uh, I mean, the one thing I would say is that I think she has been significantly more consistent as a communicator and reliable as a communicator than uh, than, than, than than folks in London have been yeah. over the course of the last few months. There's not been that sort of uncertainty and chaos um, that there has been, uh, as we would say in Scotland, down south. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, I think there have been big problems in Scotland as well. The, 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 the fact that schools did not return until August in any shape or form um, has created, I think, real problems amongst the generation of kids, particularly the teenagers. Um, and, and there's no catch-up uh, programme yet in Scotland that, at the very least, has been promised uh, down here. There were big problems in the care homes in Scotland that uh, people are still, I think, um, demanding answers to. So, I mean, in my view in the, in the longer term here is that we need to have an inquiry into all this that covers all four nations of the UK. So it's not just about the politics in any one area. 
but it's actually about how did all the governments do when they were working together and when they weren't working together? And can we learn some lessons about working together as well as learn some lessons about the decisions that have been made? Yeah. And do you see an, an Indy Ref 2 in the near future? I ask people this all the time. Do you think that there will be enough pressure brought to bear on Boris Johnson in this parliament, for example? No, I think I mean, there's been some indication that, you know, partly because of the chaotic way the UK government's been run over the summer, um, that support for independence might have, independence as a principle might have gone up. But there's no indication that there's a, a, even that level of support for an, another referendum. So, you know, I, 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 and I think having a referendum in the middle of something like this would be would, would not be the smartest idea. So, you know, let's. Uh, I, I think we need to, uh, uh, you know, look back on 20, 2014 and the last referendum was meant to be once in a generation. Um, you know, I think I think when politicians say that, they should stick to the word. Yeah, I think that would be nice in general, wouldn't it? After all, um, just on fi- one final <laughs> note on the on the Yazidi front, if anyone wants to go find out more about the problem uh, in that neck of the woods, where where's a good place to go, Jack? Well, there are um, there are two organisations, Yazda, Y A Z D A, which is the Yazidi uh, main organisation that was set up. When the initial problem took place and ISIS moved into Sinjar right. and started capturing people and killing people. And then there's an organization called Nadia's Initiative, which was set up in the name of Nadia Murad, who wrote this incredible book, one of two incredible books about the whole uh, uh, business of being in slavery. And um, both of those organizations are doing fabulous work. And there's a lot of information on the Internet about them and on Twitter and all the usual sources. Great stuff. Lord Jack McConnell, thanks very much indeed for talking to us. Hopefully see you soon at some point uh, in the real world. But uh, uh, that's uh, Jack McConnell talking about Scotland, politicians keeping their word, um, the problems in uh, Iraq still which do exist, and modern-day slavery after all. Wouldn't it be nice if people stopped talking about the slavery of our past and what we should be ashamed of doing and whether we should change the Natural History Museum around and whether we should get rid of the guy that invented the British Museum and put his statue somewhere in a cupboard. But nobody wants to talk about the actual slaves that are being created every single day of every single week of every single year in the Middle East. Amazing, isn't it? This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Uh, it's time to welcome back Benjamin Lochnane from Migration Watch UK. Benjamin, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good afternoon. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Slightly alarming because, of course, over the course of the last, I don't know, month or two, we've been very much focusing, and uh, Nigel Farage has been on the show, you've been on the show talking about it as well, um, the, the increase in numbers coming across the channel um, in this year particularly is up to as many as 5,000, we're now being told. But, but also now uh, it turns out there's a growing number of teenage young men coming over in the back of a lorry again. Well, uh, yes, it's. Um, I think during the summer when uh, lockdown was on and there were less ferries going across the channel, there were less lorries going through the channel, what we had was the curtain being thrown back on the sheer scale of illegal immigration in this country, which usually ordinary people won't see and won't be aware of. Mm. But when you can see it in the channel, in the boats, in the dinghies, and they're coming across, it's a very striking optical image of the, the scale of this problem. But now that uh, all of those other routes are going back to normal, all the lorries are coming across and all of the ferries are returning to their normal service, they are starting to exploit, again, the routes which they would have exploited before. And um, I'm just worried that if boat crossings decrease as a result, the government will claim it as a huge victory. Oh, look, we've stopped boat crossings by doing absolutely nothing mm. uh, and then and then brush it under the carpet once again. Well, indeed. I mean, as a, uh, uh, the leader of Kent County Council quoted as saying, we've seen significant numbers of these young teenagers from Chad, Eritrea and Sudan. Awareness of the route has clearly become a significant factor. Now, this takes me back to a call we had a little while ago from a guy in the Isle of Man whose daughter is working in one of the refugee camps in Sudan. And he told me that she's told him that there are human traffickers basically turning up in Sudan with mobile phones, picking off these young guys and saying to them, how'd you like to go to Britain? Here's what you can get if you get there. And here's what you do to sign up to be part of our kind of human trafficking gang. And that's clearly now a massive business. Yeah, there's this misconception that these are the huddled masses desperately getting into dinghies and trying to cross the channel of their own accord. But this is a huge multinational global business. It is it is starting in places like Sudan and Iran, and it is coming across. There are only about 2,000 people in the Calais camp, and yet 6,000, over 6,000 have crossed 
this year alone. So they're not coming just from Calais or Dunkirk mm. or, or, or Belgium. They're, they're coming all the way with the destination in mind of Britain right. because they know that our government are too weak and too ineffective to deal with this problem properly. Mm. There are so many pull factors. There are so many incentives to come to Britain uh, that they're actually going to make the trip through countless safe countries just to get here where they know we're a soft touch. They take our kindness for weakness and they exploit it and they manipulate it and we allow them to do it because right. we will not change the law. And we're told by, by those in the know, yourself included, that most of the people coming on dinghies would not qualify under the UN's uh, definition of, of asylum seekers. Are we, are we talking the same situation uh, with, with these young men? Because they're coming, it would seem, from war-torn countries. Well, absolutely. The, the vast, vast majority do not um, qualify as asylum seekers. But even if they do, they pass through so many safe countries that they don't qualify mm. as refugees here. So I believe uh, of those who have come over this year, 71 have been turned down on the basis of the fact that they're in the wrong country. You know, they're claiming refuge in the wrong country. Right. But it doesn't matter because most of them will never be returned to where they came from. Most of them will continue to game the asylum system for years and years and years mm. while taking advantage of uh, Britain's generosity and weakness. Um, and they know they'll never have to go back to where they've come from. So they don't really care that much, I think, about getting granted asylum. In fact, it's just about getting to Britain and being able to milk the system, which yeah. is so weak and ineffective. And, and as you say, once they manage to, to physically land here, it's incredibly difficult to get rid of them. Now, we've heard Pretty Patel, haven't we? Every time the story kind of pops up and gets a little bit of coverage on the mainstream news, um, that she's going to be cracking down on it, that she's sent more people home, that basically they're going to change the law. There was a, a the, the group of common sense MPs, we, we've spoken to many of them, who were having meetings with the Home Office. There was a Home Office Select Committee, Home Affairs Select Committee meeting yesterday, uh, which, which these figures have come from. But it looks still as though there's not a lot actually changing. Well, it's all well and good to talk about it. And they've done a lot of talking and they've talked very tough and they've uh, had a, a vast number of PR stunts, but it doesn't do anything. You need to change the law. You need to eliminate the pool factors. You need to bring in tougher sentencing and, and punishment for the people who are involved in human trafficking. Because at the moment, it is actually a financially sensible decision to be complicit in human trafficking, mm. to turn a blind eye when people are leaving France, if, you're, if it's your job to stop them from doing that or to... Uh, you know, if you're a lorry driver to say, oh, OK, then go and sneak some people in the back of the lorry. It's, you know, I'll make a bit of money out of it. And I probably won't be punished if I'm caught anyway, because the government is so lax and so weak mm. in this country that they fail to actually disincentivize people from being complicit in trafficking. Never mind people, people crossing. You know, it's um, we need to get tougher. Yes. We need to get a little bit, little bit more serious about this issue and not just wait for the, the boat crossings to stop and people to return to lorries mm. and then pretend that we've fixed the issue. And go, oh, look, the boats aren't coming anymore. Right. Oh, yes, because they've just moved back to going in lorries. Well, but because, and also um, because it, we've, we've moved into autumn, whereby the seas will probably be slightly less um, calm and glass-like, which is what they have been all summer. Yes, exactly. Less still seas, uh, less choppy crossings as it were but um but uh, this is the problem the government can get away with doing nothing they can get away with talking the talk mm. and failing to actually do anything right. and then turning around in winter and saying oh isn't it funny that now that it's uh, cold and wet and the waters are more choppy people aren't coming it must be because all of our pr stunts worked well no they they, they know what's going on they do. And of course, I mean, I haven't been to Calais that recently, probably not for about four or five years, but they did change the way that the um, the ferry ports were kind of commissioned, if you like, didn't they? Because they made it a lot more difficult for people to congregate around where the, where the lorries actually stopped. They put a lot more fences in. They made it much more difficult for people to actually illegally get onto to lorries. So are you suggesting or are you thinking that some of these lorry drivers may be complicit then? Well, I think uh, a lot of people are complicit. It's a big money business. You know, where there's money, there's a huge financial incentive to suspend your morality and your ethical judgment, for, you know, for a brief period of time yeah. to, to make a bit of money. And a lot of people, I think, uh, sadly, will do that, as we can see, just by the sheer numbers that have been coming in. I believe during the period of uh, November 2018 to October 2019, there were 50,000 class clandestine attempts to enter Britain. So that, that's a huge amount of money, a huge amount of people coming over uh, or attempting to. 
uh, compared to the 6,000 who have come this year in boats, I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg. It's the lorries, it's the cars, it's the, you know, all manner of, uh, of um, methods that mm. exist apart from boats. But what we know about the traffickers is that they are very enterprising, they're very creative, and they adapt very quickly. So you can put up all, all manner of fences and uh, border security and all the rest of it. They'll find a way to get around that. Yeah. What it comes down to is changing the law. Mm. It's not about putting up fences. It's not about putting up signs which say, please don't come to Britain. It's not about appointing, you know, a clandestine Dan, Dan Amani, this uh, Yeah, how's he getting basically on? <laughs> Well, I think he, I think he's being set up as a full guy for the for the governor, yeah. uh, to be honest, because he has no power, effectively, without the law behind him. Mm. What power does he have to do right. this? He's just a figurehead, so that they can turn around and go, oh, we, well, we appointed someone to do this job, and if they haven't done it, then it's not us right. to blame. Well, it is you to blame. Mm. It is the Home Office. It is the government. It is it is the people who have the power to change the law who are to blame for this continuing to happen. Right. And what was the point, by the way, of putting up all these drones that we saw for quite a period of time? I don't know if the drones are still there, but they don't appear to, 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 to sort of p- pursue any purpose particularly. Well, again, I think it's just optics. It's yeah. all about appearing to be doing something. I mean, they could put up balloons, you know, put up some barrage balloons in, in the channel. It would do just as much good. Right. It, you know, it's, it's all about giving a sense to people. Oh, look, we're doing something about it. And then waiting for winter to come and the numbers to reduce naturally of their own accord and then claiming it was the things you did that, that, that had that result. When really it will go up next year again as soon as the seas are calm again, as soon as we enter into spring and summer, we'll see it and it will continue to happen for year after year until we get a hold of the legal issues. It's a legal issue. We need to crack down legally. We need to disincentivize people from making these crossings by eliminating the pull factors. We need to disincentivize traffickers and people complicit in trafficking by making it uh, by making the punishment more than the uh, financial incentive. We need to eliminate all of the things that make this such an attractive prospect for traffickers and migrants alike. Yeah, because I'm looking at a quote from the, uh, uh, the the committee meeting yesterday. Jenny Coles, president of the Association of Directors of Children's Social Services, saying that they're seeing more and more unaccompanied asylum-seeking children arriving at St Pancras Station. So presumably they're coming on the train as well. Uh, well, exactly. This is the point. It's, you know, you can you can do everything you can in the channel and they'll just find another way. They'll yeah. be hopping on the Eurostar. I mean, the, the traffickers are very intelligent and they put our government to shame, you know, because they're so much more in, intelligent and, and creative, clearly, than our government. But maybe it's not that they're more intelligent and creative. Maybe it's just that they're more willing. Mm. Maybe they're just more motivated to do this because our government don't care, really, when it comes down to it. They care only about making it look as though they're doing something yeah. and all of these grand PR stunts. Whereas these traffickers know what their goal is, they know what their aim is, and they're achieving it very well indeed. Well, they are. They're clearly more determined. And as I've said many times before, you can't really blame the individual asylum seekers because, of course, if they can come here and get a better life, they're going to do it. Um, but the way that they stopped it happening in Australia was by simply becoming much more hardline about just telling people, no, you can't stay here. We're going to send you back. And if you keep arriving, we're going to keep sending you back. And until such time as they realise that that's not going to work anymore, um, then they'll just stop coming. Well, this is one of the things I was saying earlier about the, the legal changes. We need to crack down on our asylum policy, which mm. is not fit for purpose. It is so open to abuse that they know they can come here and just play the game for years upon years yeah. and never get returned to where they came from. Until we say, if you come here and you claim asylum and you're not a refugee and you're not a legitimate asylum seeker and you've passed through countless safe countries to get here, you will not be granted asylum. You will not be allowed to enter the country even at the beginning at all. You will not get to stay here for any period of time. You will not be put up in a four-star hotel. You will not get free health and dental care and clothing and your phone bill paid and all sorts of other soft-touch namby-pamby policies, which are hugely attractive to people who are in camps in Calais or in Sudan or Iran. Um, Until we do that, they will continue to come. And it it really does come down to that. We just need to be tougher. We need to disincentivize people from coming here. 
by making it uh, less of an attractive prospect for them. Absolutely right. Benjamin Lochnane, thank you very much indeed uh, from Migration Watch UK, of course. Um, it seems incredible, doesn't it, that uh, uh, there is nothing, it would appear, that the Home Office could do. Still, despite all of the, uh, the protestations, despite all of the stories that are written, despite all of the videos that are shot, uh, that basically uh, the people who still seem to be able to come here um, unattended, they seem to be able to uh, get here by any means that they wish to use, whether it's by dinghy or whether it's by train or whether it's by uh, lorry or car, we seem incapable of stopping it. I'm surprised, actually, that these ambulance-chasing and dinghy-chasing lawyers haven't set up uh, an office in St Pancras Station to get them as they come off the train and just introduce them to the world. Incredible, isn't it? The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is time to take our weekly uh, jaunt across to uh, the beautiful shores of Southern California uh, to talk to the beautiful LaDonna Harvey. LaDonna, a very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. And a very good morning to you. And how are things in sunny Southern California? Um, hot. Hot and uh, virtually uh, fires everywhere. Right. It's, a, it's a hot mess. It sounds awful. Tell us how bad. I mean, because I mean, this is something that happens kind of now tends to happen pretty much every every year, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Um, it you know, we don't really get huge firestorms in San Diego, but once every, I don't know, seven or eight years. And I guess we were due for one. So we've got one that's 17,000 acres. Wow. Um that's burning it's close to san diego it's not that close mm. you know it's not it's not threatening the city or anything but it's definitely a problem because uh, it's hitting our outlying areas you know where many commuters live right because normally it's a bit further north up around sort of malibu isn't it yeah malibu burns a lot uh you know los angeles burns a lot San Francisco is just inundated with smoke right now if you tried to drive across the bay bridge in san francisco up really? north it's like it's like driving through thick brown gray smog goodness me and we saw this in australia earlier in the year and they had a terrible time with it all because people's houses were destroyed and entire communities were destroyed loads of animals were killed and of course the air pollution you never really recover from that no you really don't um it's a it's a you know it's a dangerous time uh fall in southern california and in all of california it always has been uh, but it does appear to be getting worse. Yeah, yeah, it's really awful. I see that there's, there's fires in Oregon as well. Yeah, um, I've got a, a couple of friends who who make wine in Oregon, mm. and they had to early because they were worried about not just you know the smoke damage to the grapes, but also burning down. Yeah, and, know, it's, and it's hard for us to imagine here in Britain because, as I say, if you have this every single year in California, I mean, who pays for it? I mean, what about the insurance costs if your business is lost, if your home is lost? I mean, it must be a terrible financial strain on the state. Oh, it is. It's billions of dollars every time we see these wildfires. So you see those jokers, you know, who, who accidentally started a fire uh, with a baby name reveal or gender reveal party, and you just want to slap them right. and say, "Good Lord, I, you know how many things have you destroyed? How many lives have you put in jeopardy?" Yeah, I mean that's just horrendous, isn't it? 
What about the other big story, I guess, of the day, which is the new Bob Woodward book about Donald Trump? We've been listening to uh, a little bit of audio uh, for the president, basically saying that he, he knew about COVID a bit earlier than he made out, but he wanted to play it down. Right. Uh, yes. <laughs> Donald Trump, he is, he is something. He really um, is. We all knew about COVID. We, we all knew about it. Um, what we didn't know was the scope of the danger and, and you know, just how devastating it was going to be when it runs amok through a population that has no resistance to it. And that's all of us. That's right. you, that's me, that's everybody. Um, and, you know, I think people are, you know, many people are very unhappy with his with his reaction to it and with with the fact that we are still struggling six months later and, you know, possibly in San Diego, even rolling back openings because we can't get it under control. Well, this is the problem we've got here um, because we've now been told we're going to have, we're having, having to encounter COVID marshals who are going to wear those high visibility vests and they're going to walk around telling us all not to stop and telling us all to keep moving uh, and to carry on, not to go over there, don't sit down there. I mean, can you imagine how ridiculous that's going to be? Well, it's it's really disheartening. I mean, you know, we are social uh, we're social animals, and we don't do well, and we're not doing well under isolation. I mean, hell, I'm not doing well. Uh, you know, depression rates, suicide rates, the the after effects of it and the side effects of it are almost as bad as you know the people who are dying from it because yeah. there are so many people dying of loneliness exactly right well we were speaking to some friends of ours in uh, australia one of the callers to this show uh, who was in melbourne where they've got this massive lockdown and they've got a curfew and all sorts going on and he said there were two suicides in his street that morning two ambulances were called two separate addresses two young men who killed themselves yeah it's it's happening a lot um, and it's and it's something that we're going to have to deal with. I mean, I don't. I you probably know this. I work with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, mm. and there is a palpable sense of panic among those of us who who work in suicide prevention over. You know, we don't have enough mental health care to help people who are isolated, alone, and falling down a, a black hole. And it's and it's frightening. The, the scope of this yeah it really is and how goes the uh, election process because i'm reading today that nancy pelosi has been sticking her oar into the brexit negotiations again by saying that uh, if there's anything that changes the status of northern ireland or if there's any international laws broken uh, if uh, the uk goes ahead with what it wants to do that somehow there will be no transatlantic trade deal i didn't realize that it was up to yeah. her uh, it's not <laughs> <laughs> It's not. Um, she can make it hard. Congress can make it hard. Yeah. Uh, but they need to. They need to. They need to deal with the home fires. Let's let's worry about the home fires and let you guys do what you're yeah, going to do. Exactly right. Because I'm hearing. I'm told um, by my former Californian uh, resident, uh, but now Talk Radio co-host uh, Kevin O'Sullivan, that the U.S. wine industry is in jeopardy because of these fires. Oh, definitely. Um, the the wine industry is. We've got fires over by Napa and Sonoma. Those are two huge mm. wine areas in California, uh, Oregon. The wine country is, as you know, I mentioned earlier. We've got people harvesting grapes just because they've got to do it, um, or they'll lose everything. Um, you know, and that's just one agricultural sector. It's it's not the only one, but it's the most high profile, probably. Yeah, it really is. Um, still any sign of, uh, of, of, a, of a debate in, in the near future? Yeah, they have three of them set up. Um, two of them are this month uh, here in September, and one is on my birthday. Yeah, marvellous. What a, what a gift. Well, listen, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, I think it's going to be horrendous, uh, tr- tremendous fun um, for those of us who just enjoy watching two old geezers having to go at each other. Oh, and they are going to have a monster go at each other. It's not going to be pretty. It, it will be, it'll be like watching wrestling um, and MMA mixed together, except nobody's actually going to throw any punches because <laughs> they'd probably hurt themselves. Yes, exactly uh, right. So it'll, it'll, be, it'll be a verbal throwdown. And it sort of reminds me of that, uh, that scene from the, I don't know if you ever saw Frankie Goes to Hollywood's video about two tribes and these two guys it was meant to be Gorbachev and Reagan I think wrestling in a in a in a, in a ring covered in mud or sand or something it's very funny well it makes you wonder if Frankie goes to Hollywood wishes Reagan was back well a lot of people wish Reagan <laughs> like was you back thought he, you thought he was the devil surprise <laughs> 
No, Reagan looks like a towering intellect right now, doesn't he? But that's another story. Listen, LaDonna, take care of yourself. Stay away from the fires. It's really bad over there. Imagine the wine industry of California literally uh, becoming more or less uh, ex- extinct. Never mind Extinction Rebellion. You don't want to have it wine, wineries being uh, basically burned to the ground. They won't recover from that for years and years and years and years, I would imagine. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. It is that time, though, uh, just after the news at 12.30. Every single day we've been doing homeschooling. Your kids are probably back at school now. Mine went back yesterday, uh, much to uh, the delight uh, of their mother, I think. And probably to most of you, uh, you're quite happy to see the kids going back into the classroom. But we're going to keep going uh, with our homeschooling section because I find it quite educational, apart from anything else. And there are many things uh, that I've learned on our homeschooling section that I didn't know about. And today, I'm delighted to say we're going to be talking about windows and their cultural significance. Alan Dunlop's an architect. He joins me now. Alan, very good afternoon. Hello there, mate. How are you? Very well indeed. Now, as we all normally do, uh, we spend quite a bit of time looking out windows. I mean, I'm looking out my window. I can see the Tower of London. I can see the London skyline. I can see Tower Bridge. You know, they're great things, windows, but I guess we didn't always have them. No, we didn't. Uh, And you might think, first off, that the idea of discussion about a window could be quite a prosaic thing, but actually windows have been intrinsic parts of our cultural, social and political lives for over 2,000 years. Right. Um, and, and I mean, would, would you call a window with something with glass in it? Because I mean, when you go to the old castles and things and you look at them and you think, well, that was obviously a kind of a, a slit in the wall so that you could fire an arrow at someone who was trying to take the castle from you. Um, but I presume they were also seen as places to get light in. Well, they were. It wasn't until the Romans invented glass 2,000 years ago that we really got the idea of a window. Right. They had openings before that to let out smoke and for protection. The Chinese and the Japanese had windows, and rather than glass, they used paper to cover mm. them. Okay. But the Romans invented glass, and really, as a consequence of that, also invented the idea of the window. Right. I mean, it's quite an extraordinary invention, that really, isn't it? Glass, because if you didn't have it, how would you know that you could get it, if you know what I mean? Well, a very difficult process to make, especially in those days, 2,000 mm. years ago. Because the glass that's made now has to have a kind of temperature of 1700 cc's in order to actually make the glass uh, to sand into glass. Mm. The Romans and the Syrians and the Egyptians couldn't quite make that. So the glass that they made was quite small and quite heavy. Right. And consequently, the windows that they used were quite small too. Right. And I know that this is going to jump around a bit, and I'll try I'll try and follow your, uh, your sort of uh, timeline without wishing to jump all over it. But the window tax was something that was interesting to me um, back oh, in Oh, yes, it was. Yes, yes. Uh, windows are always also been a, a status symbol the more windows you had the wealthier you were likely to be yeah so you know william iii in the 17th century introduced a tax uh, for people based on the many windows they actually had which caused a bit of disruption obviously and people started wealthy noblemen started bricking in their windows or covering up their windows right and it wasn't until the middle of the 19th century that that was actually changed so that was that was how they, they organised the, the tax you had to pay based on the number of windows that you actually had. Right. And, I mean, did it do any good, the window tax? Did it actually raise any money? Well, it, it didn't raise any money from poor people because they, they had very little glass <laughs> and very little windows. So the, so the money came from the wealthier people in society. I mean, the, the, as far as the politics of the window is concerned, it's an incredibly interesting story. Mm. I don't know how much you know about something called defenestration, I, I've used I use the word on a regular basis, but I don't know probably actually what its origin is. Well, that was a legitimate way for noblemen to get and for kings to get rid of princesses and princes and other noblemen didn't like. They threw them out a window. That right. was part of a, a legitimate way to actually do really? things. And so is that that's the actual that's actually the origin of the word then? Oh, oh yes, yes. It comes from the Latin fenis duration. Uh, um, and uh, not far from here, the James II threw the eighth Earl of Douglas out of the window of Stirling <laughs> Castle. So that that was a legitimate way to actually get rid of your rivals and other noblemen. Right. Uh, uh, 500, 400 years ago. Because, I mean, I've also, I've, I've watched, as I'm sure many people have, glass blowing. You know, I was in Venice many, many years ago where they make a lot of that Venetian, you know, rather ornate types of glass and, and different coloured glass and stuff like that. And, I mean, I presume that's a very different process than the one which makes windows. Well, windows today, modern architecture is made from plate glass. 
That was developed in uh, 1902 in the United States, but uh, the Syrians are the first people to invent the blow glass technique, and that was taken up by Venetians. And for nearly 400 years, the center of the glassmaking industry was based in Murano and in, uh, in, in production of Venetian glass. Yeah. But it's not until the development of plain gla uh, plate glass and when we could heat the sand to very high temperatures and make a plate of glass that uh, it became something which was used uh, in, in modern architecture right. and a fundamental part of modern architecture itself. And when did uh, stained glass come into being and become a sort of a thing? Well, the, the zenith, let's just say, or the, the pinnacle of stained glass is Chartres Cathedral uh, in the 13th century. Um, churches prior to the development of what we call Gothic architecture were in the Romanesque style, uh, cruciform shape, uh, crucifix shape, and rather heavy stone buildings. Very limited opportunity then to create windows. And then, but the Gothic architecture came through and uh, buildings, the structure for buildings became lighter. And something called the Lancet window was developed, which is Lancet name comes from a, a lance. And these were filled with incredible stained glass, the best of which I think is, is Chartres, just south of Paris. Right. And and these these told the story of the Bible to people who couldn't really read, uh, the population that couldn't read with the story of the Bible and parables and the story of saints themselves. So so the pinnacle uh, of of stained glass is you would see in Chartres Cathedral. Right. Uh, Although do you know what I've been to? I don't know if you've been to the one in Reims, the cathedral in Reams, because they've got. Um, uh, some stained glass, which was actually done by Chagall, the artist, which is yeah. quite remarkable. I mean, it's probably slightly less um, traditional, I suppose. Yeah, well, that is, I do know that, that stained glass, and it is really incredible. But if you really want to see stained glass and what the, what it's like and the effect it had in the uh, Middle Ages, Chartres Cathedral was a place to actually go to. Yes, okay. And as far as the kind of, um, I mean, one of the things as well that's always fascinated me, they had a window tax in America, uh, which is a slightly different window tax. This was told to me by a bloke who was in the mafia, um, who basically was in the construction business. And they said that everyone who puts up a building in Manhattan has to pay according to the number of windows that are going into the building uh, to make sure yeah. the Teamsters Union doesn't pull the workers out of the, uh, out of the building and the building doesn't get built. Yeah, well, well that, that sounds much like the tax that was introduced uh, on the wealthier people in England 400, 500 years ago. Right. But the USA is, is the place for the tall plate glass buildings. And modernism, the idea of modernism as, as preached by Mies van der Rohe, Skidmore Owings and Merrill, or Le Corbusier, really took the idea of plate glass and the use of glass in buildings and steel construction a completely new height right. right i see what you did there but this is the thing right um london now has got a very different skyline to the london that i was born in because of all this, the the new sort of skyscrapers for want of a better word that have been put up but as an architect are you concerned at all about the way that our cities seem to be going at the moment because they're literally empty uh, the buildings look as if they're not going to be reoccupied until sometime in the middle of next year. I mean, architecturally, that may have some impact on how our cities start to look, mightn't it? Well, the, 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 the look of the, of the city and the use of plate glass is, I wouldn't necessarily say it was worrying, but the element that is worrying about the use of glass and, and in particular how buildings are being designed these days is a problem, what we call sick building syndrome, yeah. where we don't have any opening windows. Uh, everything is actually air conditioned. Right. And, uh, um, and and that's a difficulty. I mean, it, as an architect, when I'm designing a building, I always like to introduce, because I think it's a, it's a, it's a pleasant and normal thing that you can open a window. But uh, buildings these days, uh, high-rise buildings, are based mm. upon the fact that, you know, when the windows are unopenable. It's operational by air conditioning. And that element, rather than the idea of actually use of uh, glass in architecture is something which I think is quite worrying. Yeah. Also, particularly the idea of what's happening now with COVID. Mm. I mean, the, the, the introduction of fresh air into a building rather than relying on a mechanical and uh, ventilation system like air conditioning is something I think that we should be promoting and, 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 and developing further in architecture. Yeah, that's interesting. Rather than closing windows, we should actually look into opening them and creating a window. Although I suppose in, in um, opposition to that view would be the Andrew Lloyd Webber view of the world, which is that he's claiming his theatres have got better quality air because of the filtering systems that his air conditioning uh, units have got than actually the air outside, i.e., you know, he could, he could offer... 
his theatres as a, a place where you could put things on because nobody's going to get COVID sitting there. Uh, I haven't heard that element of... of uh, for me, there's nothing better. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are, whether it's an office or whether it's a house or any particular building, that you have fresh air circulating through the building and to, to be able to have a window, especially when you're designing a house, to have a window that you can go and open as right. a kind of pleasurable act. Right. You know? so, um, I mean, I don't know whether you would know the answer to this question, but is there a building that you can point to in the world that has the most windows in the world? Well, there's the new uh, One World Trade, which has just recently been finished in New York. Oh, is that what they call uh, the Freedom was, Tower? Yeah, the Freedom Tower, yeah. yes, yes. Uh, monolithic tower buildings supposed to be reflective to the, of the sky. Trouble is that birds keep crashing into it. Right. Um, so that, that would be the, the kind of uh, ultimate, I, I, I suppose, of high-rise architecture, uh, tall yeah. building architecture with the substantial use of glass. Right. Do you know uh, something strange that, about that building? And I saw it when they, were making, when they were building it before it was finished. I haven't actually been up it, but friends of mine have. When you look at it from a certain angle, it actually looks like the original two World Trade Towers together. There's some kind of thing they've done with the view of it where it looks like the two original towers. Well, the whole idea of it was, it was well, first of all, the height of it, mm. uh, 1776, uh, uh, right. uh, as a parable or a, a, for the you know, American Independence Day. Yeah. But also the idea that it's so reflective that it disappears almost into the skyline. You know, mm. It reflects the, the sky. So I would imagine in that circumstance, rather than looking at any other building, it's supposed to disappear into the New York skyline. Right. I haven't seen it in the flesh, uh, and it may be some time before I get to America again, but yeah. uh, that, that, that certainly was the intention behind it. Okay. Well, fascinating stuff, Alan. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, as ever, uh, you've learned something you didn't know about, right? Alan Dunlop, architect, talking about the joy of windows uh, and how fascinating windows actually are, which, of course, is what everything is on this show. Fascinating is a good word. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB, online, or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.